The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. I invite you to open to the book of James, which comes right after Hebrews. We found Hebrews this morning. All you have to do is turn one book to the right, and you will find the book of James. Uh, I'm going to start with an introduction, but I'm going to use uh, James 1.1 for our passage this afternoon, for our introduction. So I will read James 1.1, and we will consider really the, not only this verse, but springboard into the entire book of James. So let's uh, turn our attention now, turn our ears to God's Word as He speaks to us through it. James 1.1, this is the Word of God. James, a servant or slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. May God now be pleased to add his blessing to the preaching of his word. Well, uh, we begin a new study in a book that Martin Luther referred to as the Epistle of Straw. And what he meant by that is he was playing off of 1 Corinthians 3, where it speaks about each man's work uh, being judged by fire. And if somebody's work is straw, then it gets burned up. And so what Martin Luther is referring to is that this epistle of James, this work of James, is like straw. Because it's going to be burned up because it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it is what Luther said. Now, we certainly do not want to follow Luther in this terrible impiety. I think it's a good reminder that uh, not everyone in church history is either a good guy or a bad guy. Uh, There's always uh, issues with anybody. But you may still wonder, okay, where is the gospel in the book of James? We do not read anything about the death of Christ the substitutionary atonement of Christ, His sacrifice and taking our place on the cross to pay for our sins. Neither do we read any explicit statements about His resurrection. So, is Luther right on this? Is he even a little right? Well, we're going to answer these questions and hope to gain clarity on, on them, and also some other basic questions about the book of James to help us understand it. So I have four questions, and the first is this. Uh, Who is James? Because we read in verse 1, James. So who is this human author who is addressing us? And to this question, we are not 100% certain. Uh, We can make a pretty good guess, though. But part of the difficulty is that there's at least five James in the New Testament. And there's even some disagreement over how many there are. You read Some commentators, they'll say four. You read others, they'll say seven. Some say five. I'm just going to go with five. I think there's five. Uh, But sometimes uh, uh, James that's mentioned in one passage, it's not clear if the James that's mentioned in another passage is different or or someone who's the same. So that that adds a complicating factor. There's a couple of James who are obscure. In Mark 1540, uh, there's uh, James is a son of Mary Cleopas. And then there is a James who is the father of the Apostle Judas. Uh, Because of their obscurity, it seems like these are ruled out because the James here in this epistle, 
assumes his audience knows who he is, where he doesn't have to explain, this is who I am. He also has some authority with them. He expects them to, to hear what he has to say and listen to what he has uh, to say. And so that leaves us with uh, maybe a couple of the apostles. You know, the two of the 12 apostles were named James. Uh, James, the, the, the son of Zebedee, who was John, the apostle John's brother, he died early. Acts 12 says he was martyred under King Herod. So that likely rules him out. Then we have uh, the other James, other apostle, uh, the son of Alphaeus. It's possible he could have written this letter. You know, being an apostle, he would be known, he would carry authority. But the most likely person who wrote this letter, and what also church tradition uh, teaches, is that James, the half-brother of Jesus, the brother of Jude, the one who wrote the letter of Jude, uh, is the one who wrote this letter. Uh, he was a leader and a pillar of the church in Jerusalem. You see that in Galatians and Acts. Uh, he would be well-known. He would have teaching authority with the people. And one of the, the reasons it's believed he wrote this letter is because when you look at this letter of James and you compare it with that letter in Acts 15 that was written uh, during the Jerusalem Council over which James presided, there's a lot of similarities. And there's five unique words and phrases that are used in both. So best guess, probably that James, the half-brother uh, of Jesus. And it's also what uh, church tradition uh, has taught. So this is our best guess. But if that's the case, then it's significant the way he describes himself in verse 1. He calls himself a servant or slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about all the ways he could have, ident he could have uh, identified himself here. He could have said, James, I, the half-brother of Jesus. I'm related to Jesus. You know, how are you related? I'm related to him, and you or not, you don't have the relationship I have. Or James, uh, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, the first New Testament Christian church. Never get confused about First Baptist Church. Like, how many First Baptist churches are there? How can it be First Baptist? How can it be the First Baptist Church when there's so many of them? Well, James could actually say the first New Testament church. He could name his church that. Or he could say James, whom the Apostle Paul referred to as a pillar of the church. Galatians 2.9. You look at social media accounts, you look at bios and books, usually they're focusing on things like that. Uh, their accomplishments, uh, education. And I, I get with, when it comes to books, they have to give some sort of uh, proof as to their credibility of why they're writing on a particular subject, whereas James didn't have to do that because he was already known. Nevertheless, of everything he writes, he sees his identity as a slave of Christ, as his servant. Christ owns him. His life belongs to him. He lives to serve him. And that would be quite humbling given the fact that, if this is true, Jesus was his half-brother. Nevertheless, he saw him as Lord and Savior, but he did not always see him this way. Now, there was a time when he was not believing in Jesus. John 7, 5 says, not even his own brothers were believing in him. However, sometime after that, possibly after Christ's resurrection, when he appeared to James, according to 1 Corinthians 15, is when James believed in him. 
And so he goes from an unbeliever to believing in Christ, being used of him as a pastor in the church in Jerusalem, and is contributing to part of holy and inspired scripture. So that's James. A second pertinent question to help us understand the book of James is, who are James' hearers? And he writes in verse 1, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Twelve tribes is just another name for Jews. And even though scripture affirms that uh, we are the true Israel, the church, Jew and Gentile together in one body, uh, James seems to be writing to ethnic Jews. Now these are ethnic Jews who are true believers in Christ. James 2.1 affirms that. Uh, but at this time, it appears that the church was primarily Jewish, or primarily consisted of believing Jews. And there was a great scattering or dispersion of these Jewish Christians after the martyrdom of Stephen. We read about that in, a in Acts 8. And then in Acts 11.19, it says that those who were scattered, that is dispersed, it's the same word, because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. So this is quite a, a scattering or dispersion of these Jewish Christians. And Acts says that it was the church that was persecuted and dispersed. But again, at this time, it primarily consisted of believing Jews. In fact, in the dispersion, as they were being dispersed, Acts 11.19 says, when they were evangelizing, they were only speaking to Jews. Uh, at this time, there was, there was still not this understanding of the relationship between Jew and Gentile and how Gentiles have been brought into uh, the, the, the body, incorporated to this one body. So this would be resolved in the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, which occurred about 49 AD. James likely wrote this letter between the dispersion in Acts 8 and 11 and this Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. And so this could very well be the earliest New Testament, New Testament epistle that we have uh, in the New Testament. And we even see this in James 2.2, 2, uh, 2, where James speaks of those coming into their, literally from the Greek, synagogue. It's translated as assembly in our English translations, but it's synagogue. They're still meeting in a the synagogue. Their early church worship on the Sabbath day, not the temple where you have the feast, but, but the early Christians continued in the synagogue for worship, continued to worship the way they worshiped in the synagogue. And James doesn't condemn them for that here. So he's speaking primarily to a Jewish audience, yet Jews who are true believers. And because uh, we share in the same faith, uh, this letter also applies to us. Okay, so the next question, the third one, why is he writing? And the answer is that he is writing to encourage those who are dispersed. And I want you to think about how big of a trial that is. Imagine that you are forced out of your home and property. That you are displaced from your home because of government persecution. Okay, so you're, you're essentially homeless. You're, you're forced to live in uh, another country. And on top of that, your, your only real employment option is to basically do labor on farms. Uh, rich landowners have hired you. Uh, you're, you're a day laborer, basically. And as you are doing this really hard work on uh, these farms, these rich landowners don't pay you your wages. You see that in James 5. 
And they're also bringing them into court, unjustly condemning them, it says in James 5. James 2 says they're bringing them into court, even murdering them. So not only are they displaced from their homes, forced to live in a foreign place due to persecution, they are also forced to work for these rich landowners to make a living, a very hard work, only to not get paid their wages. This is much worse than having a bad day at work or having a job you don't like. So how does James address these Christians going through these significant trials? Well, James begins by telling them to count it all joy. Now, is this the first thing you would want to hear when you're going through a trial? You have, let's say you have a risky surgery coming up, and you tell your friend about it. And your friend goes, oh, I know. Pull out their iPhone and pulls up the music and plays, don't worry, be happy. This should make you feel better. What kind of friend would that be? Or, let's say you are standing in the street, you're wrapped in a blanket, you're watching your house burn down, watching the fire department moving a lot more slower than you would like, putting out this house fire, and you have a friend that comes up to you and says, why aren't you happy? You should be happy. You know, one of, one of the, the most painful things said to me uh, was when I was going through a very difficult trial, still probably one of the most difficult trials I've ever faced in my life. I was telling one of my uncles about it on the phone, really started to open up to him a bit, and he responded by saying, why are you telling me this? Just get over it. Doesn't the Bible tell you to rejoice? Yeah, that, that kind of hurt a little bit. I mean, it's like, here's my wound, just pour salt on it. Uh, is, this, is this what James is doing? Is James doing this here? Is he dismissing our real sorrow and struggles? Well, later on, James says in his letter, in James 5.13, is, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. So James doesn't say, is anyone suffering? Let him stop. Let him get over it. Let him rejoice. Rather, James says that we should draw near to God and pray. What James is doing there is he is not downplaying our suffering. Rather, he is turning our focus off of our suffering and onto God. And that's what he's doing here. He's turning our focus off of our suffering and trials and on to God because he immediately goes on to say why we are to consider trials all joy. It's knowing, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So rather than saying, look, all is hopeless, you're suffering, it's, it's, it's all is lost, it's just pure suffering, he says there is hope because God is using these trials to grow us, to sanctify us. They're not being wasted. They're being used to perfect us, something that we won't achieve in this life. He actually is giving us hope that these trials are not in vain, but are working to perfect us. He is turning our attention off of the very present 
very raw, very seen, very felt trials to the unseen realities that we must embrace by faith. He points to the end result of these trials by by pointing to the crown of life. That is the the full experience of eternal life in heaven. James 1.12 If the Lord is bringing us through these trials to sanctify us and perfect us, then that gives us hope for what lies ahead. That heaven lies ahead. He only works these trials in those He intends to perfect. But in this, He also wants us to see the dross. The sinfulness and foolishness that these trials bring out of us. Because after He says that God uses trials to make us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, He immediately goes on to say that if any of us lacks wisdom, we should ask God. When we think of wisdom, we tend to think of making the right decision or the best decision in a situation. However, as I intend to show, wisdom for James is much more than just making the best decision in a situation. He describes the wisdom from above in James 3.13 and 18, which manifests itself in one's humble conduct, including being pure, peaceable, gentle, full of mercy, and open to reason. So within the book of James, this is how James thinks of wisdom. And so if anyone lacks these things, they lack wisdom. The wisdom from above. And what does God use to reveal that we lack this? He uses trials. A a trial is this providential pressure that the squeeze in on our hearts that bring out the sin in our hearts that was there all along. They reveal where we lack wisdom, i.e., where there's a presence of foolishness. To lack wisdom means there's a presence of foolishness. And so what it, so that is why James immediately follows up, speaking of trials, with telling us that if we lack wisdom, we should ask God for it. Then he moves on to tell us that while God does ordain trials to perfect us and to reveal this foolishness in us, he doesn't do so to cause us to sin. That's James 1, 13 through 18. He says, why would God do this where every good thing comes from God? From this unchangeably good God. And moreover, He brought us forth, that is, He gave us new birth by the Spirit, so that we would be a firstfruits of His new creation. That, that, that we would bear this fruit of the new creation. He is not trying to get us to be evil, but is working good in us. And so our response is to receive His Word with all meekness and humility, not get angry at it when it calls us out, when it points out our sin. And then James reveals what being perfect and complete and lacking in nothing looks like. He says in James 1.26-27, through, through 27, three things that he's going to repeat uh, through his letter. First, it is to bridle the tongue. Verse 26. He says in James 3 that if anyone bridles their tongue, then he is a perfect man. Want to know what it looks like to be perfect? You can bridle your tongue. It reveals we're not so perfect, are we? 
But this is what we need to strive for. And trials reveal this. Second, it is to visit orphans and widows in their distress. That is, it is to give to those who can't give in return. You're not looking for something in return. And he follows this up immediately in chapter 2 by talking about not showing partiality to the rich, favoring those who can really bless you. And then third, it is to keep oneself unstained from the world. It demonstrates the fruit of faith of those who are looking to the world to come. Uh, it is to have the wisdom from above and not this worldly, demonic wisdom from below, James 3.13-18. That wisdom from below is especially marked by quarrels and fighting as opposed to a harvest of righteousness that is sown in peace by those who make peace. You want to see a fool? It's somebody who causes conflicts and quarrels. Because what causes quarrels and what causes fights among us? Well, it's not the wisdom from above. It's the passions that are at war within. James 4. Uh, we want something. Whether it's material. Uh, whether it is something such as wanting to be affirmed wanting to be validated, wanting to be loved, or finding peace and security. We become afraid. And so we want to control and manipulate and are filled with great fear rather than trusting the Lord all along. These passions are at war within us. And this leads to quarrels and conflicts, which James says is being a friend of this world. That's the opposite of being unstained from this world. And James follows of this up with the topic of speaking against other brothers and judging them. James 4, 11 through 12. Rather than weeping and mourning and looking at your own sin, the worldly person has a tendency to focus on the sin of others. Judging others. And this is someone who is not keeping the law, but is actually standing in judgment even over the law. I get to decide when I keep the law. The focus is on the speck in the brother's eye, but not the log in his own eye. That's a very proud and arrogant person. And this type of person who's very proud also thinks he can do anything. James 4, 13-17. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. James says, all such boasting is evil. This kind of arrogance should only be seen in the rich. And the rich is, is not what's in your wallet, but what's in your heart. Not pertaining to one's purse, but to one's pursuits. And James addresses the rich in 5, 1 through 11, but specifically for the sake of those who are suffering under these powerful rich. That one day, their day is coming. James says, in your day in court's coming when God is going to deliver you and repay them. So be patient. Be patient in this trial and wait expectantly on the Lord. And think about how powerful prayer is, James says. He uses Elijah as an example. And finally, don't look only after yourself, but look out for others. James 5, 19-20. You see someone who's wandering? No, if you turn them back that you save their soul from death. He is on a deadly path, so go and seek him out. 
So the trials reveal the foolishness that is present with us in our tongues, deeds, and hearts, or what we love. So when we see these things, do not blame the trials. Do not blame God. We do not get angry when God's Word calls us out, when the preaching of the Word calls us out. Neither do we seek to just deal with the trial, the circumstances. I just got to get out of this trial. Rather, we see and admit our foolishness that the trial brings out and seek the wisdom and grace that is from above. Which brings us to the fourth and final question, which is, where is the gospel in James? Well, James does not talk about Christ's atoning death, atonement for sin, and explicitly the resurrection. It's important to keep in mind that the book, that any book of the Bible is not isolated from the rest of the Bible. Okay, it, it assumes the whole canon. Uh, the Bible is one book consisting of many individual pieces. So the entire gospel is clearly in the one book of the Bible. Uh, a book of the Bible is not a sermon, except for the book of Hebrews, uh, where the scope of the Bible, Christ, must be brought out no matter what the passage. So James, like Ecclesiastes, assumes the rest of the canon. Nevertheless, the grace of the gospel is present in James. James 1.5 says, and in, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. And I want you to notice the great grace of God here. To lack wisdom is to be a fool. It is to lack the wisdom that comes from above, given the context of the book of James, which means a presence of that demonic wisdom from below, earthly and demonic. But how does God respond to a person who lacks wisdom? Who has seen their lack of wisdom and foolishness and trials? You ask, and He will give. He gives wisdom. God gives wisdom to fools. And He gives it freely. Notice it says He gives to all who ask. He gives it without reproach. He doesn't say, why would I give anything to you, you fool? Look how you've been acting. You don't deserve it. But that's the point. We don't deserve it. And yet He gives it to us. He gives wisdom to all who ask, who have not merited it, but who lack wisdom, and that's why they need it to begin with, and He gives it generously, without reproach. And in James 4, after sharply rebuking us for being a friend of this world, and therefore at enmity with God, He says in verse 6, but He gives more grace. Literally, a greater grace He gives. A grace that is greater than the sin of being a friend of this world and an enemy of God. That is, His grace is truly greater than all our sin. And really, I think that's how the book of James can be summed up. He gives grace to His enemies. As He just got done saying, to be a friend of this world is to be an enemy of God. And you prove yourself to be that. But there's grace even for you. And therefore, James says, humble yourself. Humble yourself by recognizing your sin and seeing the need for this grace. This gives us great hope 
even in our struggle with sin as believers, as, as we see our own sinfulness come out in trials, that we act like this world at times. And so the takeaway is for us to not be proud by denying our sin, being fixated in other sin, speaking evil of our brothers, just trying to get rid of the trying circumstances, resisting God's word. Rather, it is to face our sin honestly and swearly. But then, to ask Him for this grace that is greater than all our sin. It is to not try to take care of it ourselves or handle it ourselves. Because when we see our sin, we try to handle it ourselves. Or we wallow in self-condemnation. As if our hope is in our, right, in, in our righteousness or, or our ability to be righteous. Or rather, we seek His grace. We seek His wisdom from above, knowing that He gives it freely to all who ask. And we ask expectantly, asking in faith, knowing that He gives it to those who don't deserve it. And He gives it in abundance. And this all assumes the gospel of grace. That because God did not spare His only begotten Son, He also with Him freely gives us all things. Grace upon grace, wisdom from above. That God deals with our sins not in a manner of condemnation, but not according to as our sins to serve. Not counting our trespasses against us, but giving us grace and wisdom. And because Christ is raised from the dead, which James 2.1 implies, when He calls Him the Lord of glory after His death, we find He's been raised to glory. He is more than able to dispense all these gifts from His throne above. So as we go through James, may we humbly receive His Word as it shows us where we lack wisdom, where we're not yet perfect and complete, where we are still foolish. And as it declares to us the God of all grace, knowing that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, may we humbly seek His grace, knowing that indeed His grace is greater than all our sin. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do ask that you would humble us, that you would cause us to call out to you for that grace and wisdom. We pray that we would be more quick to see our own sin than the sin of others. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.